Well, I'm glad to hear everyone is excited about our study of the book of Ephesians. I hope I don't disappoint you as we come to that. I'm glad you're more excited about the start than you are about the end of a study. I would uh, would have probably cringed if somebody said, I'm excited when we get to the end of a book and it's over. But none of you said that, so I'm glad that we're here uh, for this tonight. I want to to begin our time tonight as we do each and every Lord's Day evening by asking you to take your Bibles with me and open them to the study of God's Word together. And as Chris said, I'll say again, we are beginning tonight what I trust will be an encouragement to our own souls and an exhortation to our church as a whole, because we are beginning tonight our study of the book of Ephesians the book of Ephesians. I want to begin our time tonight by just hearing God speak through His servant, the Apostle Paul. And so I want to read for us the first chapter, chapter 1, 23 verses of the 155 verses that are recorded for us in this epistle. So I'll begin chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to the kind intention which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. For this reason, I too, having heard of the faith of your, or of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, I do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling, 
What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. And he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Let's bow for a word of prayer as we begin our time. Father, we thank you that we can be here together, that we can once again open your word together, that we can hear your voice, and we can know you, the God of our salvation, the one whom deserves all praise and all honor and all Glory should be given to you, and we are here to hear from you, to listen to you, to learn what it means to be a child of yours, to live for you, to honor your name, what it means to, to, to be your body, the church, how we are to conduct ourselves. So we thank you that we can be here tonight. We can open this word together, and we can enjoy and Revel in and bask in all that you have for us. Open our minds, open our hearts. Use your spirit upon us as you do to lead us in truth. that We might know you more. And we'll ask this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. His name we pray. Amen. If you were to do a study on the book of Ephesians and pick up any number of respected commentaries on this book, you would certainly find in those commentaries that those authors, almost to a man, have tried to highlight the overall importance of this book with some very awe-inspiring words. They use words like, this is the greatest that Paul wrote. This is the the maturest of all of Paul's letters. One author said that this letter is pure music. Another author called it the Grand Canyon of Scripture. All of those words invoke in our minds a profoundness to the words that are contained here for us in this small little letter. Ephesians is indeed a profound book. But it is not profound because it is filled with mystery. It is not profound because it is filled with theology that is difficult to understand. It is profound because of the clear way that it shows us the most basic of Christian truths. That is simply to say that what we are going to learn as we study through the book of Ephesians is not new, and it is not things that we cannot find in other places within Scripture. In fact, not one doctrine that we will cover in 
the book of Ephesians is unfound in any other book. Nothing we find here is unique. What we find here are basic truths of Christianity. And Paul gives them to us with practicality and with clarity so that what we know of doctrine is linked for us to how we are to live out that doctrine in practice. And so as we approach this book, we have to understand that this is a very practical book for us as Christians. This is a very practical book. It is a very down-to-earth book. In it, we are lifted to the heights of who we are as Christians, as Paul lays that out before us. We are lifted to the place of how we came to be who we are as Christians. We are told what we will be as God's children, and we are told how we are to live in light of those truths. And so as one commentator stated it, this book is a wonderful combination of Christian doctrine and Christian duty. It is a book of Christian faith and Christian life. What God has done for us through Christ to what we must now do as a consequence of being in Christ. And so tonight, I I, I just want to introduce us to this book as we begin. And I just want us to camp in those first two verses. As Chris already said, there is so much there for us that we cannot simply run past it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes when we do our own Bible studies, we have a tendency to just run past introductions. The Apostle Paul gives introductions in all of the letters that he wrote, some of them very short, some of them very blistering, like we knew saw in Galatians. But he gives introductions, and I think oftentimes when we study Scripture, we believe that, that they're just cursory information. They're just a necessary part of the ancient letter writing techniques whereby the writer would identify themselves in the first part and then begin to share what they were going to say. But I want us to know that nothing could be farther from the truth in the letters that the Apostle Paul writes. Just as we learned this morning, if Paul's words to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 in verses 16 and 17 are true at all, and of course we understand them to be true, all of them are true, since they are in fact the Word of God just as much as Ephesians is the Word of God, then in every introduction of every book of the Bible there is Scripture that is profitable for teaching and for reproving and for correcting and for training us. And so here we are, so that we might be righteous, adequate, equipped for every good work, we 
must spend our time and camp here for a time in just these first two verses. So here in Ephesians verse 1, we have the grand theme of the entire book of Ephesians. You may not have thought that. You may not have uh, approached it that way. You may not have even thought through that in your own Bible studies in time past. But here, in the words of the Apostle Paul, we have the theme that the Apostle Paul sets forth as the grand theme for everything that he writes about within the book of Ephesians. And in fact, I would even say that this ought to be the theme of our entire life. This ought to be the theme in which we have as Christians each and every day when we open our eyes and take in that gracious breath that God gives us to live another day on this earth. This ought to be our theme. This ought to be what we think about. This ought to be what we live for. This ought to be everything in our minds. This is the theme. And the theme is simple. It is profound. And yet it is the highest thing that we should have on our minds. The theme is God. The theme is God. Some of you may have thought about the book of Ephesians. You may have read through the book of Ephesians, and you may be thinking about other themes that run through this book, sub-themes that run under the current of which this theme is overarching. And we will look at those sub-themes as we go through it, but the overarching theme is God Himself. Notice how Paul begins. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. By the will of God, we must not walk quickly past that truth. We must let that truth just sit upon our minds for a while and think about it. There are non-negotiables in our life that we must have and hold on to in our Christian faith, and this is a non-negotiable, a high view of God. Far too often in our Christianity, we have far too low a view of God, and that is the reason why very oftentimes when circumstances flow and the troubles rush in and the world goes crazy, we have trouble in our own heart and our own emotions because we have such a low view of God, even though we have convinced ourselves we have a high view of God. And yet this is the first thing on the mind of the Apostle Paul as he writes to the Ephesian believers. I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. We cannot quickly pass through that because if we do, we will miss the weight and the strength of this entire book. We will miss the hinge pin on which everything that's written in this book rests, especially within the first three chapters of this book. That is simply to say that this letter written to us has been written to us so that we first and foremost understand that God is foremost. Paul was writing to the saints to whom he was writing so that they would understand in light of their own Christian life, in light of who they are in Christ, that God is the one who is foremost in all of life. Paul wants them to understand, he wants us to understand that God is foremost in everything that he is saying. Notice just the next two verses here 
that Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Bless be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the one behind it all. And so what the Apostle Paul is saying right out of the gate, right at the launch point, right at the place where we start off the road and we, we, the gun has, has struck and, and the race has begun and we are walking down, going out right out of the gate, he's letting us know with unequivocal force that God controls everything. God controls every detail. God controls the big details and the small details. Even the Apostle Paul's life, he had no detail within his life that was doing anything without the will of God controlling it all. This was always on the mind of the Apostle Paul. Like I said, I fear this is not on our mind enough. We ought to be waking up every moment of every day And when we suck in that breath that we know and are conscious that we are breathing it in, we have to understand that God is the one in control of every moment that I'm about to face. God is in control. This book that we have right there on our laps, this book that I have here with me and I'm reading tonight is a letter from God to us. Therefore, our thinking must always start there. It must always start with God. And what is so profound about all of the grand truths that we see and have read, when I read just chapter 1 and you, you heard the words of what Paul was telling us, that all that we have in Christ, when we read about all of those grand truths just in the first chapter and the fact that we have all of this that has been initiated for us and accomplished for us, it is not done by us. It is not done by human means. None of those things have happened because you and I accomplished them. They have all happened, and they all will continue to carry on because it was a divine means that carried it out. All of the grand truths that we have been given have been accomplished by God. I want us to think about something as we begin. How much difficulty, how much strife, how much trouble, how much unnecessary anxieties, how much emotional difficulty and upheaval could be avoided? How much strife and separation and internal turmoil could be avoided within the evangelical church over the centuries if those involved, if all of the people who were, who were carrying out throughout those times and, and were involved in the strife would have begun with thinking and meditating upon that grand theme of the Bible. That it is God who rules it all. That it is God who is controlling it all. Too many within the church have forgotten about God. Too many within the church think far too much about themselves. And that is bad enough when it's in the church. And when it is in the church, surely true enough, it is in our lives. And when we think much of self, then we become quickly miserable. And we spend our time caring far too much about the things of this earth than we do about the things above. 
When our minds are not set on the things above, as we are as we are exhorted to by the Apostle Paul in Colossians, when our minds are not set there, as the writer of Hebrews says, we fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. When our, when our hearts are not set there, we are far too tied to the things of the earth. And so when the things of the earth begin to quake, Psalm 46 does not ring in our ears. We have a very present help in times of trouble. What rings in our ears is the trouble of the day and how we can get out of it. And yet here is the Apostle Paul telling us that all of life is controlled by God. What is the one great purpose of the Bible? The one great purpose of the Bible is to take us into the presence of God so that we might be humbled before God. To open our eyes to see our true relationship with Him so that we might repent and believe in Him. Once believing that we might continue to look to the things above, to, to set our mind on the things above, to have our hearts dwell on the things that are pure and right, so that we might live for Him in the here and now as long as we are here and, and in the days to come when we will live unto glory. And so here... In the words of the Apostle Paul, we are taken and shown a view of the glory and grandeur of God. I think the one commentator got it right when he said, this is the Grand Canyon of Scripture. I don't know if you've ever been to the Grand Canyon. I have had the privilege of standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. And one thing you think about when you come to the edge of the Grand Canyon is the grandeur and glory of the Grand Canyon. And so we must start with God and forget about ourselves. Because here we are in the presence of God and all of His glory, and we have to proceed humbly. We have to proceed humbly. And so how does Paul get us to that point? How does Paul get us to the point where we are in the presence of God as we will see in verses 3 through 14 and even following in 15 through 23. How does Paul get us to that point so that we understand we are in the presence of God and we are humbly proceeding? Well, first, by describing himself in light of that theme. Notice, Paul says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. In other words, the apostle Paul simply says, I am what I am, and it had nothing to do with me. That is simply to say that Paul did not call himself to be an apostle, and the church did not make Paul an apostle. He was not appointed by the church. He was not raised up. Within the church, it was Paul who called him to this office, and he is saying, I am what I am because God made me that. It was a much higher power than Paul could ever imagine. It was by the will of God. You can only imagine that the Apostle Paul here, as he's having these words written down, probably by an amanuensis, someone who was scribing them as he was dictating them because Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter. 
He was probably thinking of his own conversion on the road to Damascus, as we have recorded for us in Acts chapter 9, when Jesus Christ met him on the way and called him into ministry. You will be my servant, Paul. This was the monumental reason. This is what was on Paul's mind. He is what he is for one reason and one reason only, God's predetermined will. In fact, you may remember from our study of the book of Galatians, he made it explicitly clear in that letter. He said this in chapter 1 and verse 15, But when He, that is Jesus Christ, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through His grace. Paul says, listen, I'm not here in this position. I'm not here in this place. I'm not doing what I'm doing because of some kind of way in which I sat down one day and had these strange feelings in myself and decided to go that way, and I think this is really fun and I can make a lot of money doing this. Paul's none of that. No, it was the one who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me. I am what I am because of God's will. Paul understood, and he wanted everyone else to know that it was the sovereign hand of God who accomplishes this. It was the sovereign hand of God who had called him. It was the sovereign hand of God that accomplishes all things, even down to the minute details of our own life. The God we serve is not simply the God who called out of nothing light, and it became light, and everything that has been created, which has been created, that is the God we serve. But that same God who created everything that we live on and everything that we breathe in our lungs and all that we have for sustenance is the same God that created us and has orchestrated every detail and controls every detail of every part of our life. This is the same God. And it is this God who is the one who has chosen His own Son, All of those who will ever believe unto salvation. It is God who has sovereignly predestined every believer unto salvation. It is the outflow of the divine sovereign will of God, that will in which you and I are saved and adopted into His family. We must understand this. We must have this eternal fact in our minds that God has planned and is orchestrating and is allowing what He is allowing for His glory and our good. He is putting it into motion by His divine will and there is no salvation for anyone except by that. Let me tell you why you cannot earn your way into salvation. Some of us would say, well, you cannot earn your way into salvation because you're depraved. And certainly true, we are completely and totally and utterly depraved in mind and will and body. We cannot do anything that would ever attempt to gain some righteousness before God whereby which we would be accepted before God. But let me tell you this, the reason why we cannot work ourselves into salvation is because verse 4 says, He chose us in Him, notice, before the foundation of the world. 
Please tell me where you were when that happened. Please tell me what good works you were doing when that happened. You were chosen by the sovereign will of God to be in His Son before He ever said, let there be light. You could never work your way into that. You weren't around to work your way into that. The fact of our depravity is the outworking of the reality that shows us by way of God's graciousness that we could never do that in light of the fact that we are depraved, but in light of the fact that He chose us. We have to understand this, beloved. We have to have that on our minds. We have to have this high view of God before us each and every day. It is God who loves the world. It is God who gave His Son to die. It is God who came into the world to seek and to save that which is lost. It is God who gave His Son through a woman who lived under the law so that we might know Him and so that He might become the righteousness of God for us. It is all of God. It is, it is all according to His purpose, to His plan, according to His will. In fact, Paul says in verse 5, it is according to the kind intention of His will. The kind intention of His will. So beloved, if we do not start with God, if we do not have this grand theme in our minds overarching everything that we think about and everything that we learn and everything that we see throughout this entire book, then we will go amiss in our understanding of what the Apostle Paul is saying. So when it comes to us living out the very doctrine that we will hear in this in these first three chapters, when it comes to the Christian living based upon the Christian doctrine that we hear, we will have a, a wrong outworking of that because our motivation will not be right because we start in the wrong place. If we do not start with God and all that God has done, then we will end up always with a God of our own making who cannot save And it is a God that we should not be serving. This is Paul's desire. Paul desires that we know God. He wants us to have a high view of God so that we might fully understand all that we have from God and then live as those who understand it. Live as those who have grasped it. Live as those who understand and are walking by it. And so Paul says, what I am about to say to you comes with all authority. It comes with the authority of an apostle, one who is a a sent messenger of Jesus Christ Himself. It comes with that authority. I'm a messenger of Jesus Christ. I am His apostle But it is not an authority that I have attained by myself in some kind of human form. It is by God's sovereign plan and God's sovereign purpose. So Paul is saying to us, listen, this is not necessarily a letter from me. This is a letter from God, and I am just the messenger of it. And so to whom is this being written, Paul says? Who am I writing this to? 
Who am I writing this to? Notice what he says. I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He says, I'm writing this to the saints. Paul, having introduced himself, having told us and highlighting the reality of God, that God is over all of this, he is now speaking to those to whom he is specifically writing this letter to, and he identifies them three different ways. And I believe in doing so, in identifying them that way, he is describing what a Christian is. What a Christian is. Notice what he says, number one, Christians are saints. Christians are saints. Paul, by the will of God, to the saints. To the saints. It says, who are at Ephesus. The early manuscripts don't have at Ephesus in it. We're not really sure by way of history that Paul was writing directly to those who were in Ephesus. Many of the letters that were written by the Apostle Paul, like Colossians and others, were cyclical letters. In other words, they were to be sent around from church to church, so they were read in all of the churches. In fact, there are a few manuscripts that say this letter was written to the church in Laodicea. We're not sure if that was a scribal thing, or if the church in Laodicea read this letter and thereby attached their name to it as they sent it on, we're not sure. But the word Ephesus is not necessarily here. Maybe next week we can go into Ephesus a little bit, because I think it it sheds light at least on the saints who were in Ephesus and the kind of place in which they had to carry out their own lives. But Paul, having introduced himself by highlighting God and who God is, and to have our minds and hearts set on God, now he speaks about those to whom he is writing, in the first way he identifies them as saints. Notice that his letter is not addressed to some nondescript group of people. Paul isn't writing to the scholars at the Hebrew school in which he studied under Gamaliel. He's not writing to some kind of Hebrew scholars to get some kind of academic uh, accreditation. He's writing simply to ordinary church members. He's writing to those who are true Christians. We understand that in every church there are those who, while they may profess to be Christians, while they are at least outwardly in conformity to some activity in relationship to a religion, they are not actually saved because they have not ever repented of their sin and placed their faith in Jesus Christ. So there are many within evangelicalism. There are many in the church. There are even some who come to our church, are gathering on the Lord's Day, and they are not saved. They may even profess to know Jesus, and yet by their life they do not know Him at all. This letter is not addressed to them. This letter is addressed to true saints. You say, why do you say it that way? Well, I say true saints because to the Catholic Church, through the centuries, the term had a lot of baggage associated with it. You talk about saints in the Catholic Church, it conjures up a whole different thing in mind than the Apostle Paul is speaking of here. In the Catholic Church, to be a saint, first you have to be nominated. Somebody has to nominate you for sainthood, and then you have this 
convening ecclesiastical hierarchy that meets to hear the arguments as to why you should be a saint. And one of the arguments is that you committed, you did some miracle. You, you actually exercised in some way some kind of miracle. And so you have to pass all of these things in order to be a saint. And if, if you pass the first thing in the argumentation, then they start to scrutinize the miracle that you might have done in order that they might approve that, that it be a genuine miracle. And then after that, another person comes. Interestingly enough, this person is called the devil's advocate. They come and they argue against all of the arguments that were for you. They give the, the negative side of it so that they might tear the person's story or character apart in order to deny sainthood. Sounds much like what Satan does with us in heaven, accusing us. So that in the end, in the Catholic Church, if the person passes all of those tribunals as they go through them, they are determined to be a saint, and conferred upon them is that very title. They are saints. Only in the Catholic Church, not in the eyes of God, but why? Because that's not how the Bible describes saints. To be a saint in the mind and purposes of God means that you didn't do anything and God did everything. You did nothing, God did everything. It means that you have been set apart. That's what sainthood means. You've been set apart. That's what the word means. And that's only something that God can do. God can set you apart. It's the will of God, just like the will of God that set Christ or set the Apostle Paul apart as an, as an, as an apostle of Christ Jesus. It's the same thing for setting you apart as a saint. Paul could have said, Paul, a saint in Jesus Christ by the will of God. He could have said that. It would have been true. That's what the word means. It has nothing to do with human achievement. Therefore, every true Christian is a true saint. And every true saint is a true Christian. Why? Because it was God who set them apart in His Son. That's why Paul could begin verse 3 as he begins it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. If there was a period after the heavenly places, it wouldn't mean anything, but it's in Christ. If you're not in Christ, you're not part of anything that's in God. Therefore, being set apart means every true Christian has been separated unto Christ and has been separated from the world. That doesn't mean that we're taken out of the world. We're still here. Physical sense, we're still in the world. Right? There will come a time when we will no longer be in the world in that physical sense, but doesn't mean that now. What it does mean is that we have been removed from the spiritually dead world. We're no longer part and slaves of the spiritually dead world. We have been transferred into the spiritual life world. In fact, just for a moment, go over to Colossians chapter 1, just so we can hear this in our ears again. Now, 
Notice what the Apostle Paul says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love for which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world. Also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love in the Spirit. And so for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we haven't ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. How? By being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in this inheritance of the saints in light. It was God who qualifies us. It is God who puts us there. It is saints in light. Why? Because when he rescued us, verse 13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We've been taken out of the spiritually dead realm and put in the spiritually life realm. So the true Christian no longer belongs to this fallen and spiritually dead world. So if we are truly Christians, then we have a new nature. We have a new set of loyalties, a new set of direction. We have a new agenda to live by. You and I as Christians belong to a new kingdom. We belong to God's kingdom, not the kingdom of this world. And so that means in a practical sense that while we may not be made perfect until we arrive in the heavenly of heavenlies with God, all saints will live ever increasingly obedient to the things of God more so than they could ever have done in the world. That's called sanctification. Because we are in a kingdom of light, we live for the kingdom of light in an ever-increasing greater obedience. Why? Because the new nature desires the things of God. Desires to do the things of God. In fact, notice how Paul states it. Chapter 2. Notice how he states it. We, we love these verses. We say them all the time. Chapter 2, verses 8 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not as a result of work, so that no one should boast. We understand that it's all of God. God has done it all. It's by the will of God. And why did He do this? Well, we are His, verse 10, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Good works that we do? Well, yes, we do them, but it isn't works that we are creating in ourselves. It's works that were prepared beforehand by God so that we would walk in them. You know what works those are? The Bible. The things of Scripture. 
the commands of God. If you love Jesus, you follow what Jesus said. That's the works of God. And so we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by works. It is faith alone in Christ alone that saves. And that is of grace. That is a grace of God, the unmerited favor of God. But that faith does not remain static. That faith isn't just for fire insurance to get us to glory. That faith has an action that comes after it. It doesn't remain static. That faith walks in obedience to the works that God prepared before ages past. So all Christians are saints. And all saints walk more and more saintly. So Paul says, remember, it is God's will. That is why all of this is true. It's God's will. It's God's will that you are saints. That's it's by the will of God. And secondly, he says, Christians. Not only are saints, but Christians are notice those who are faithful. Apostle, an apostle of Christ Jesus, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful. Who are faithful. I believe Paul is highlighting two truths about the Christian right there in just that one word. First is that they are people who exercise faith. They are faithful people. They are people who are, as the word indicates in the original language, full of faith. In other words, a Christian is a person who has heard the good news of the gospel, right? Romans 10, verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So they hear the gospel, they have heard the gospel, and they have by faith entrusted themselves to the gospel. Jesus Christ, he's the subject of the gospel. And so a Christian is one who exercises faith. The word actually means that, to be full of faith. And so Paul is writing not to all people who profess that they have a relationship with God. That's not who he's writing to. He's not writing to people who simply make some kind of mental assent to the facts of the Bible. Ooh, I can read the Bible and I, and I have this mental assent to the, some kind of facts that touch my emotion. No, not writing to them. He's writing to the true Christian. True Christians are people who have faith. So they are faithful in that sense. But secondly, they are faithful in the sense that they continue to exercise faith. That faith is continually being exercised. They are Christians because they are believing and they are walking in that belief. So they are faithful in that they exercise faith and they are faithful in that they continue in faith. In other words, it's not just because you believe in Jesus in the end, in the sense that you had faith back here, but you don't have faith anymore. No, you have faith and it continues. This is something crucial for us to think about, crucial for us to ponder when it comes to Christianity. A person cannot be a Christian apart from a certain belief. Right? If that belief is genuine, it will continue to believe and it will continue to walk by that belief. 
So it isn't just that I say I believe over here and I, I, I go, oh, hey, I, I hear these intellectual facts. I hear these things about Jesus, so I believe. And then the rest of my life, there's no, there's no sense in which that faith is exercised in any kind of way in my life. It isn't carried out in my life. In fact, I go on living like the world like I always did before I said that. That's not Christian faith. That's not believing faith. To be like that is to simply say that a Christian is someone who can just go, oh, okay, I'll believe in Jesus today, but not in Jesus tomorrow. That's not true Christianity. Or that someone can just be nice, or someone does humanly good things, or they're a member or an attender of an evangelical church, that they're Christians. There are millions of people in our world today who are labeled as Christians. It's almost nauseating. Everything seems to be called Christian. I see it on the news. I see it everywhere. And it just nauseates me only by being described as having some kind of respectful life or or going to a church or saying something in your life. You're a Christian, but that's not what God calls a Christian. A Christian is a person who believes specific truths that center upon a specific person, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a Christian. The Christian is, as the word describes, someone who is full of faith. Faith in what? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? The Christian believes that Jesus of Nazareth is the only Son of God. The Christian believes, and they fully believe, that He was born of the Virgin Mary. That He is the eternal, living Word of God who has become flesh. That's what a Christian believes. A Christian has full faith in the reality that God took on human nature and He proved His divinity through all that He did. Including the resurrection from the dead. Christian believes that Jesus Christ is actually alive today in the heavenly. We believe in the resurrection. Every true Christian, every actual saint believes those truths. They are saved by faith and they live by faith. That means they are faithful. So Paul says, I'm writing to you. I'm writing to the saints, the holy ones, the ones who have been set apart by God, by the will of God, and that reflects in your life because you live by faith. You're people of faith. In other words, because the Christian is full of faith, they continue in the faith. We could say it this way, a Christian keeps the faith. Christian keeps the faith. We might even call that perseverance. Or if we want to see it from God's perspective and the reality in which why we persevere at all is because God preserves us. Again, God is doing it. You know what that means? That means we will not fall away. 
That means the true Christian does not fall away. Why? Because God keeps him. Because God put him there and God keeps him there. John 10, verse 28 and 29. And I give eternal life to them. Jesus is saying this to the Pharisees. I give eternal life to those who are my own and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I love that. I love that. A true Christian can't even sin himself out of salvation. That sounds rather radical. That sounds almost borderline heretical because our hearts and our minds go, wait a minute, that means I could just do whatever I want and I'm okay. No, you won't because your heart, if you're truly saved, won't go there. Because saints want to live for the glory and honor of the one who saved them. So they'll never go there. So the Christian is a saint, and the Christian is one who is full of faith. And notice what Paul says. Thirdly, a Christian is one who is in Christ Jesus. This becomes the theme of the following verses throughout this chapter, in Christ. Sainthood and faith are meaningless if you and I as Christians are not in Christ. We're going to see this throughout our study of this book. That phrase is monumentally important. That's why some would may even come to Ephesians and say the theme of Ephesians is unity with Christ. That certainly is a theme, but it is a sub-theme under the grand theme of God doing it all. We wouldn't even have the theme of being in Christ if God hadn't done that. And so we are in Christ The Christian belongs to Christ. We are united with Christ. We are joined to Christ. Paul says to the Corinthian believers, we are the body of Christ. We are the body of Christ. Paul says it here in verse 23, which is his body, the church, right? God put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The next time you sin willfully as a Christian, think about that. You are sinning in the body of Christ. You are that intimately linked with Jesus Christ that each and every time we choose to willfully sin, we are taking Christ into that sin with us. And the rest who are part of the body of Christ. This is why I've always said here in this church, how we respond and live outside of this place reflects upon all of us. We cannot ever say, well, it doesn't matter. I'm not in the ministry or I'm not in the church today or I'm not with the people of God today. We can never say that we are always reflecting the body of Christ. Notice, by the way, how this reality plays itself out in how we are to live. Go over to chapter 4. Again, 
I'll read another rather lengthy section because you you just can't grasp it all without hearing the full thing of what Paul says. Paul, beginning in chapter 4, begins with, Therefore I, and he's in light of everything that he said in chapters 1 through 3, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Guess what chapters 1 and 3 are about? All the reality of how you've been called and what you are in being called. I want you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Why? Because there is one body, there is one Spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism, there's one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Even though God, by His grace and mercy, has granted to each one grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, when He ascended on high, He led a captive of hosts captives, and He gave gifts to men. Paul goes on to explain what that expression means in that parenthetical statement there in verses 9 and 10. And then he says in verse 11, And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. Why? Why? For the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Beloved, if you understand God, if you have a view of God that is right, a high view of God, and you understand your Christian life in light of who Christ is and that you're linked with Christ, you will run to the front of the line in order to be used by God in the body of Christ. Why? Because being used in the body of Christ is building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to a knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. When we do that, as a result, Paul says, we'll no longer be children tossed here and there by waves of carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But we'll speak the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects in Him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Do you see? You are an integral part of the body of Christ. Each and every one is an integral part to the body of Jesus Christ. And so the Apostle Paul says back in verse 1, Christians are in Christ. We are in Christ. Being a Christian means that while we are believers in Christ, it also means as believers in Christ, we are joined with one another as we are joined with Him. So everything that is true of Jesus, all that has happened to Him has therefore happened to us in Christ. Paul will say to us in chapter 2 that God raised Him up. That it was God who raised us up with Him. Right? God raised Christ up, but God raised us up with Him. Verse 6, 
Right? We were dead. We were dead before, but God was rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. What was the great love with which He loved us? In Christ, before the foundation of the world, it says in verse 3. So we were seen in the mind and heart of God in the grand wisdom of God before the foundation of the world in Christ and because of His rich mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, transgressions and sins, He made us alive together with Christ and He raised us up with Him. And He seated us with Him in the heavenly places. God would never remove you from what He has given to you because you are in His Son. And so everything that is true of Jesus Christ, all that has happened to Him has happened to us in Him. And so the moment that we are in Christ, we were and are raised up and seated with Christ. That's a staggering thought, isn't it? That is a mind-blowing truth that we have to continue to have in our minds as we live. That all that God has accomplished for us has been accomplished in His Son. I am part of Jesus Christ. I belong to Christ. I am part of His body. I am not my own. I was bought with a price I am in Christ. He is the head and I am one of the members of His body. Do you see how staggering that is for us to understand? Do you see how mind-blowing that is when you think about it as you begin? Do you see how that will have an impact on how you live each and every day? All of the blessings that we enjoy as Christians are because we are in Christ. And it all came about because of God's sovereign and gracious will. Therefore, beloved, being in Christ is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. We are not simply followers of Christ. We are in Christ. That's the essence of Christianity. That is the essence of true Christianity. And as we are going to see in our study, our union with Christ has its source in the sovereign election of God before the foundation of the world. Before any of us were ever created in any kind of way, And our being in Christ, our union with Christ while being part of the sovereign election of God before the foundation of the world will have its fullness come in our glorification with Christ in the eternal future with God. And so it covers from time before till time eternity. Apart from Christ, our human condition is one of hopelessness. We have no hope. Yet in Christ, our condition is eternal hope. So I just want to say to us tonight, if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, then you are in Christ. 
If you're a true Christian, you are in Christ. And if you are in Christ, you cannot be divided from Christ. You cannot be. There is no justification without sanctification. There is no being set apart in Christ without being one who is sanctified, being in Christ, and thereby living faithful in Christ. We are made saints in Christ, and as saints, then we exercise being faithful in Christ. And so we live for Christ as those who know Christ because we are in Christ. And all of this is because God has sovereignly chosen it to be so for the pleasure of the glory of His grace. Simply so that God would be glorified through His creatures as He has designed it to be. So Paul says in verse 2, grace to you and peace. Grace and peace. Comes from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There would not be grace or peace if Jesus Christ were not involved. There would be no grace and peace if it was not for God's sovereign hand. And so God the Father and God the Son are there and we are enveloped in the undeserved mercy of God and we are at peace with God. The very words Jesus said to the woman who came to him in John or in Luke chapter 7 that we saw last week and he said your sins are forgiven go in peace go in peace peace with God grace and peace have been lavished upon us in Christ and we need both don't we we need both we're going to remain faithful in the world we need both of those just like the Ephesian believers needed in the world in which they lived. Kind of ran a race, haven't we? Well, as we move through this, this study, we're going to learn what we ought to be in the world. We're going to learn how we ought to be. There's no secret as to how we can do it. There's no secret in the minds of Paul. There's no silver bullet. How can I do it? We're only going to do it by the will and strength of God who has sovereignly called us to Himself through His Son. That's how we do it. The good thing is we don't need anything else. We don't need anything else. I think when Paul, the Apostle Paul tells all the believers that he writes to this very same theme. Here's who you are, and here's how you ought to live. So we don't need anything else. In fact, Peter said we have everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need for spiritual life, everything we need for this life, everything we need to be godly. All we need to do now is walk in obedience to it. We'll get some of that next time. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you that we could just just dance really on the head of a pin because it's so, so much here. We could come back to these two 
sentences, this one sentence really, and, and spend an entire eternity not mining all of the depths that are here, understanding how deep the fountain goes of your sovereign hand to care for us and all that we have in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us here. Thank you for moving in our hearts to challenge us in our own lives, to help us be encouraged by the very words that the Apostle Paul has said. Thank you for the power of your Spirit to move upon us and to use us for your glory. Thank you for the people of this church who desire to know you and want to hear from you. So they come. Lord, bless them. Make them strong in Christ. Build them up in the inner man that they might understand the full knowledge of you. And through that, be fully engaged and and fully motivated to serve you in each and every way. Lord, we thank we're thankful that you use such feeble instruments, broken pots like we are, and you have made us alive in Christ. We didn't deserve any of that, but you gave it to us freely. Unfathomable that it happened even before you created anything you thought of saving us. What a blessing. What a joy. So Lord, use us in all of our weaknesses. You might be magnified through it all, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.